The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January would make a great gift for your pastor. It's the New Concordia Commentary on John, chapter 7, verse 2, to chapter 12, verse 50. This latest Concordia Commentary is written by Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Bill Weinrich. Learn more about our January Book of the Month at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The New Concordia Commentary on John 7, 2 to 1250. It is one of Jesus' most familiar sayings, I am the light of the world. But what does it mean? What is he saying about himself? Is he making a statement about shining the light of the gospel? Is he talking about him being the revelation of the true divinity? What is he saying about himself when he says, I am the light of the world? Well, context is helpful. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about John 8, 12 through 30, I am the light of the world, Dr. Bill Weinrich, professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January, the New Concordia Commentary on John, chapter 7, verse 2 through chapter 12, verse 50. Dr. Weinrich, welcome back. Thank you so much, Todd. Always good to be with you. I'm going to begin by reading the first eight verses of the text that is ahead of us, and then we'll go on to the next section when we've discussed it. Beginning at verse 12 in John 8, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? He answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This claim, I am the light of the world, what does it mean? Well, it's a good question, and obviously the image of light pervades the Gospel of John. It's introduced already in the prologue at the first couple of verses. We are told that what happened in Jesus was life, and Christ was the Word, was the light of life, or the life of the light, and that he lightens everyone who comes into the world. So... That Jesus is the the light of the world has numerous, or at least three major Old Testament and thematic backgrounds, the first of which, of course, is the creation account. So when he says, I am the light of the world, he is referring to himself as the instrumentality by which God, his Father, is going to bring about a new creation of a reconstituted Israel, which will, in and through Jesus, his death and resurrection, 
uh, encompass all of humanity who believes, whether Jew or Gentile. So in the first instance, I am the light of the world has these new creation overtones. Within the specific context of John 8, however, another context perhaps is more dominant, and that has to do with the Festival of Tabernacles. The Festival of Tabernacles was a harvest fall festival in which the Jews celebrated their exodus out of Egypt into the Holy Land, but also was celebrative of the coming new exodus that God would bring about at the end of time when he would gather his scattered people from the four corners of the world and bring them into a unity of life with him, which would be in the Holy Land and indeed in the place of the new temple. During the Festival of Tabernacles, there was nightly a light ceremony in which a huge candelabra was lit and in the midst of the temple as an expression of this eschatological hope. But along with that Festival of Tabernacles and indeed part of the the symbolism and the thematics of Tabernacles was the idea that the law itself, that is to say the Torah, the account of God's character and the account of his will to save uh, was itself the light. So the rabbis thought of the Torah as the, the light of God, and no doubt Jesus is also referring to something like that. He is himself the true Torah, the very incarnation, in fact, of the divine will. And so these three things are certainly playing in together. New creation, the festival of tabernacles, which is looking forward to a new exodus in which, like that first exodus, God will lead them by way of a pillar of light. We see this in the language of those who follow me, for example. That's kind of exodus talk as well as discipleship talk. But also the idea of Jesus as the new Torah in which the people of the eschaton, or if you want, the people who have placed their faith in Jesus as the new way, will follow him with obedience. And so they themselves will follow Jesus according to his own way, which is according to the will of his Father. So these are the three kind of predominant accents in their new creation, new exodus, and then also a new creation and a new exodus, which will incorporate, it will have to do with a new people of God, which is obedient to the divine will. Are there Old Testament roots for this statement in the prophets? Well, there are, and maybe two of them immediately come to mind. One of them is Isaiah, and indeed the prophet Isaiah is a crucial Old Testament background text for the Gospel of John. Nowhere is that more the case than in what is often referred to as the suffering servant hymns where we are told that 
Those who sit in darkness will see a great light. The language of Revelation and for the Gospel of John, the coming of Jesus as the light of the world, is this new fact where those who sit in darkness may see and come to know God through the work of the redemptive activity of Jesus, that he is the light of the Gentiles. That's the language of Isaiah. So that's certainly in the background because one of the aspects of Festival of Tabernacles was, in fact, the universalizing of Israel's eschatological hope that it would be redeemed and would be gathered from the nations. But in their gathering, in gathering, the nations themselves would also be in gathering. So the universalism of Isaiah's suffering servant hymns is certainly one of those backgrounds. But specific to the Festival of Tabernacles, perhaps the most important passage would be Zechariah 14, which actually is reflecting these Festival of Tabernacles ceremonials, including the ceremony of light. And there we are told, uh, Zechariah 14 now, that in that day there would be neither day and night but perpetual day, and that it would be at night as though it were in daytime. And so we we see this idea, again, of Jesus as the light is he who brings in this final and never-ending and perfected new people of God who are known by way of faith and obedience. Dr. Bill Weinrich is our guest. We're talking about Jesus' statement, I am the light of the world. His opponents say, you are giving testimony about yourself. Your testimony is not true. How do we understand that objection? Several issues, etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the president and vice presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org 2023 nominations. IssuesETC.org slash 2023 nominations. You're invited to a special life service Sunday afternoon at 3 on January 22nd at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Columbia, Illinois. Pastor Michael Salamink, Executive Director of Lutherans for Life, will be the guest preacher. What does Jesus have to do with life issues? Find out at a life service Sunday afternoon at 3, January 22nd, at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Columbia, Illinois. Learn more at sidadvocatesforlife.com. Is your child struggling at school? Are you thinking about homeschooling? Would you like help knowing what to teach and how to teach it? The Simply Classical Curriculum from Memoria Press provides an enriching, step-by-step classical Christian education for students who have autism, learning or behavioral difficulties, ADHD, and more. You'll find everything you need, including daily lesson plans to guide your way. Learn more at simplyclassical.com. Use LPR23 to save on your order. Simplyclassical.com. 
Imagine this. What if you planned your vacation? You picked the location based upon where you knew there was a good Lutheran church. Well, we're here to let you know that if you're planning a Southern Oregon vacation, whether you visit Crater Lake, raft the Rogue, fish for salmon, or head down to the Redwoods, there's still a place for you to receive forgiveness. Faith Lutheran Church in Rogue River, Oregon. What's a vacation without the gospel? Faith Lutheran Church, Sundays at 10 a.m. Visit faithrogueriver.org. Sanctifying your exercise routine with the Word of God. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. Congregational Sponsor. Bethany Lutheran, Fairview Heights, Illinois. Divine Savior Lutheran, Divine Texas. Grace Lutheran, McPherson, Kansas. Hope Lutheran, Sunbury, Ohio. Mount Calvary Lutheran, San Antonio, Texas. Our Savior Lutheran, Winchester, Virginia. Redemption Lutheran, Battle Creek, Michigan. St. John Lutheran, Schaumburg, Illinois. St. Paul Lutheran, Unionville, Michigan, Trinity Lutheran, Wichita, Kansas, and Redeemer Lutheran, Huntington Beach, California. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast at our website, and in the Issues Etc. Journal. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking with Dr. Bill Weinrich, Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, about the words, I am the light of the world in John chapter 8. Jesus' opponents, the Pharisees in particular, Dr. Weinrich, respond by saying, you were giving testimony about yourself, and your testimony is not true. How do we understand that? Well, one of the interesting aspects of John's gospel is kind of a trial aspect, which is, I believe, based upon the trial that God pursues, again, in the prophet Isaiah, God is himself in the dock. He is on trial with his people, and so he pleads with them to not go after alien gods. He actually asks the pagans and the nations to give witness to what their gods have done. Let them say what is true about their deities. And, of course, the implication is that the pagans can really say nothing about their pagan deities who have really done nothing. They are lifeless, vacuous, and non-existent deities. And so God then, and here is also, I think, the primary background of the I am sayings of John's gospel. So Jesus said, I am the light of the world, that God now uses that self-designation language, I am he, ani who, in the Hebrew, ego eimi in the New Testament in Septuagintal Greek, I am he who created all things and brought you out of Israel. And so God is reminding Israel in terms of his own self-witness, his own testimony about himself, that he is the God of their redemption that has already happened. They have been brought out of Egypt. 
but also he's the creator of all things that exist. And so they can place their trust and their faith in him and their hope in him for a new exodus by which they would be eternally redeemed and saved. This is the Old Testament kind of background into which the Gospel of John now places this increasingly hostile exchange between Jesus and his Jewish opponents. And again, these Jewish opponents are not just the hoi polloi of of the people of Israel. These are the leaders of the Sanhedrin. These are the primary Pharisaical leaders, such as Nicodemus would have been a member of that particular class. And so Jesus actually is placing himself in the position that God places himself in the trial episodes of Isaiah's prophecy. And so what we have in this context is a kind of a legal process in which one's self-testimony, that is, testimony about oneself, is largely invalid. And so one needs the the confirming testimony of at least two before any legal witness or testimony could be admitted as evidence. And so when Jesus speaks then about himself, which in view of John's gospel, Jesus again is placing himself in the role of the God of Israel in Isaiah, he is Indeed, like the God of Israel in Isaiah, he is giving self-testimony. But it is true because it is his own divine testimony about himself. But as Jesus goes on to say, I am in fact not alone in my testimony because there is another along with me who also is bearing witness, and that is the Father who sent him. And so now we there is introduced into this text a very kind of subtle Trinitarian dynamic, especially the relationship between the Father and the Son, who, while distinct voices, nonetheless, their witness comes forth as the singular witness of Jesus about himself as the one sent from his Father. And it's this dual witness that is, in fact, being given voice by Jesus' own self-witness that the Jews can't comprehend. And so they are continuing to judge Jesus by way of the canons of their own legal prescriptions, which we do, in fact, find in the Old Testament legal books, for example, Leviticus and Kings and so forth. But there's a new reality that is now confronting them in the person of Jesus, which they do not recognize. And so later on in this passage, which you read, Jesus says, you judge me katasarka. You judge me according to the flesh. And what that probably means in this context is you are judging me by the legal criteria of your law, but You do not know, and here then the language of mission, you do not know from where I have come and where I am going. And that is the pervasive language which Jesus uses to speak of his coming from the Father for the 
purpose of dying for the sins and the life of the world. They ask the question, where is your father? And his response seems cryptic. It has a lot to do with being sent and where he came from and where he's going. Take us through that, if you would. Well, yes. In many ways, well, in every way, John 8 is an incredibly, in many ways, difficult part of the Gospel of John, but it also introduces a very significant and major theme and aspect of John's presentation, and that is that the God of Israel has the identity of the Father who sent Jesus and Jesus whom the Father has sent. So the identity of of the God of Israel now is the Father and the Son, the one who sends and the one who is sent, together as one constitutes the reality and the identity of the God of Israel. And it is very clear then that the Jews here, because they are judging Jesus according to the specific criteria of the Old Testament text, taken in terms of its own set of references, they do not understand this at all. And so when they say, where is your father? I mean, keep in mind, they've just said, your, your self-testimony cannot be admitted as evidence because you're testifying about yourself. We need at least two witnesses. And Jesus has then said, my witness is true, but I am not alone in my witness. My father also witnesses to me. And so they're looking around, as it were, and they're saying, in effect, what? We don't see your father here. So it's very clear that they are still thinking in fleshly terms. Perhaps they thought of Joseph at that point. Who knows? But it is very clear that they are not perceiving the divine origin and the divine mission, which Jesus himself is talking about. And so it's a very common kind of stratagem that we find in John's gospel that there's deep irony and misunderstanding because the Jews are thinking only in terms of Old Testament references, while Jesus is transforming those references in ways that speak about himself and his own mission. And so this whole context then, in a very subtle but also in terms of the Jews' self-condemning way is introducing these two witnesses as the father who sent his son and the son who is sent by his father as together being the single witness which fulfills the canons and the demands of truth in a Jewish courtroom. Dr. Bill Weinrich is our guest. We are talking with him about Jesus saying, I am the light of the world in John chapter 8. Is there any significance to John's note of where Jesus was when he spoke these words? Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the president and vice presidents of Synod. 
please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. I'm Chaplain Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Congregations work hard to keep the Word of Christ dwelling richly in His disciples now and into eternal life. We work to help and support that effort. Learn more at lcms.org worship. You'll find resources on the church here, Bible studies on the hymns of the day, audio helps for learning to sing our services, and look for worship planning resources to find the latest from LCMS Worship. That's lcms.org worship. May the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Spiritual and religious. You're listening to Issues Etc. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Elective abortion is not and never has been medical care. So wrote Dr. Donna Harrison, a wife, mother of five, and grandmother of ten, and also a pro-life advocate. And she wrote those words in the January issue of The Lutheran Witness, in which we take up the issue of the pro-life movement after the overturning of Roe versus Wade. To pick up your copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Welcome back. We're discussing Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Dr. Bill Weinrich, professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, is our guest. Is it significant, Dr. Weinrich, that John notes there in verse 20, he spoke these words in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come? Well, yes, it's probably not significant that it was at the place of the treasury. We do know that the porch of Solomon and the place which was the place of the treasury was the common place where Jesus often taught. And so we know from the first chapters of Acts, for example, that very early on the disciples after Jesus' ascension also taught there in the temple in the porch of Solomon. But that he's in the temple is in fact significant because the temple was the focus of the expectation and hope of the Festival of Tabernacles, which again had as its primary proclamation that at the in the last days God would bring from the world's nations and where his people are enslaved and in bondage, that he would free them in a new eschatological exodus and would bring them to the place of his own dwelling, which was, in fact, the temple. And so that he is now speaking these words, I am the light of the world, which are deeply, again, involved in the Festival of Tabernacles imagery and thematics. He is in that place proclaiming himself as the reality of the final Feast of Tabernacles. And so we see 
implicitly, and this becomes more explicit later on in John's gospel, we see now, however, implicitly this transformation of the temple on Mount Zion, located in Jerusalem, to the place of the new eschatological temple, which will be Jesus himself, and indeed Jesus himself as the crucified Lamb of God. And so, later on, at the end of John 8, we are told that Jesus leaves the temple. And indeed, he never really returns to it again. So there you actually get this transitional notion. It's not so clear there in John 8, uh, 20, but in John 8, 59, we are told that Jesus went out from the temple. And that's not just a historical notice. It is a sign that the place of the dwelling of God is now changing. And we saw that already at the beginning in the prologue of John's gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. There you see already the introduction of this theme that the final eschatological dwelling place of God will be the crucified Jesus. And so in various ways, for example, in the Good Shepherd Discourse, we will see that the cross of Jesus or the crucified is the place to which people come, to which they are drawn by the Father or by the crucified himself. And so Jesus the crucified becomes the place of the new temple. And we begin to see then this, in such verses as you just referred to, this transition beginning to take place and unfold. What is your insight into they did not, or did not arrest him? That seems a little foreshadowing there. Because his hour had not yet come. That language is used any number of times in John's gospel that they wanted to seize him, but his hour had not yet come. One of the primary aspects of John's gospel is, in fact, the freedom of the Son to do the will of his Father. And so Jesus going to his cross is a voluntary and willing sacrifice, which is by way of his obedience to the will of his Father. And so, over and over again, the Gospel of John or the Evangelist John lets us know that the coming of this hour will not be determined by the actions of men. Uh, they may be entailed, but only by way of being instruments of God's own willing. And so, again, the voluntary and free nature of Jesus's way to the cross is a common accent and an important accent in John's presentation of Jesus. Picking up at verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? 
Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say to you and much to judge in you, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Beginning there with, I am going away. What's Jesus talking about? Well, it's, it's important that we get this right, it seems to me. Very often in commentary, I am going away is thought to be referring to his resurrection and what we call his ascension. In effect, I am going to heaven or something like that. I would like to suggest to your listeners that in John's gospel, the crucifixion of Jesus or the time and the place of his willing passion for the life of the world is, in fact, not only the central, but it is the the event of uttermost finality in John's gospel. Beyond this act of his willing passion, which is said by John, the evangelist, to be his exaltation, the language of ascension and the language of kingly enthronement, there is no further action in John's understanding of the role of Jesus than his willing crucifixion, which is the manifestation of Jesus' divine status as Son who dies for the life of the world. And so it's at the cross that we are led to know God. This is why verse 28 of the passage you just read is so crucial. When I am lifted up, then you will know that I am, that the crucifixion of Jesus manifests God according to his nature. So that is kind of a prologue as to the importance of getting language like where I am going correct. This is the language that he used, Jesus uses, to express the destiny and the intention of his coming altogether. So when he says, where I am going, you cannot come, he in effect is saying, it is my office, it is my destiny as the Son sent for the life of the world to go to the cross. This I must do by myself. You cannot come with me now. Keep in mind later in the so-called Upper Room Discourse, Jesus will say the same thing with exact same language to his disciples. So when he says now to the Jews where I am going, you are not able now to, to come with me, that's, that, that, there's nothing hostile about that. He will say that later to his disciples. I think it's in John 14, if I'm not mistaken. So he's basically saying this work of mine, is mine to do, and by virtue of your circumstances as sinners, as those 
bound and corrupted by death, you cannot come. I am the Savior. I must do this by myself. Now, later, and in this passage, which you just read, he will say that there will come a time when you will seek me, but you will not find me. And this seems to have as its focus what we might call a post-resurrection context where there will be the Christian proclamation, but they will still fall by the wayside by virtue of unbelief. Now, there's another possibility, I should add, to that language that you will seek me, but you will still die in your sins, or you will not find me. The language of seeking was already introduced in John 1, where Jesus first says to his, those two disciples who were following him, what do you seek? And it seems in that context, and perhaps also in John 8, that to seek after Jesus is to read the scriptures for discernment of God's will and pleasure and how he is acting. The language of to seek was often used by the rabbis. We find it also in the Qumran community, which means to seek means to study the scriptures with the intent to follow them. And so when Jesus says, you will seek me, it may have to do with reading the Bible, with reading the scriptures. Can you read the Bible in such a way that you find Jesus within those Old Testament proclamations? And I think Jesus is perhaps saying to the Jews, there will come a time when you will continue to read your scriptures, because he speaks here also of your law, that you will read your scriptures, and despite everything that you have seen and know about me, you will still not find me in your biblical text. And this idea was, of course, already introduced in John 5, when Jesus also, in a very polemical context with the Jews, reminds them, you search the scriptures for you believe that in them you have eternal life. But it is precisely those scriptures that testify of me. And so Jesus as the life, the one in whom eternal life subsists as his proper character, those who wish to have life by way of pondering the scriptures, must find Jesus who is the life in those scriptures. And so it's not accidental then or simply circumstantial that even after Jesus was raised from the dead and had ascended into heaven, the primary form of ongoing apostolic proclamation was to preach from the Bible. It is by way of the the scriptures that one discerns now who Jesus is and how, in fact, he comes to us. And this is, if I might, this is one of the reasons why it's crucially important, for example, that we find 
the sacrament of baptism in our scriptures and that we find the sacrament of the Holy Supper in our scriptures. Because if they're not there, if they're not central to that scriptural proclamation, then frankly, they're not central. And so it's interesting to what extent a passage like this, which doesn't speak of the scriptures in any explicit way, nonetheless, the subtext of this is study the Old Testament and read it as the story of Christ himself. So where I am going means I am going to the cross, which would be the manifesting clue for understanding the biblical text. We're talking about Jesus' words, I am the light of the world, with Dr. Bill Weimer, professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, where they form servants in Jesus Christ who teach the faithful, reach the lost, and care for all. Learn more about studying for the vocations of pastor or deaconess at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, ctsfw.edu, or 1-800-481-2155. When we come back, we'll take up the words, you will die in your sin. After our conversation with Dr. Weinrich concludes, Dr. Michael New will join us to talk about the Biden administration and abortion drugs, and we'll discuss some requirements for teachers in Minnesota with Dr. Ryan McPherson. Your daily Lutheran Bible class. You're listening to Issues Etc. The Issues Etc. book of the month for January would make a great gift for your pastor. It's the new Concordia Commentary on John, chapter 7, verse 2, to chapter 12, verse 50. This latest Concordia Commentary is written by Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Bill Weinrich. Learn more about our January book of the month at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The new Concordia Commentary on John 7, 2 to 1250. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're in John chapter 8 talking about the words, I am the light of the world with Dr. Bill Weinrich, author of the Issues Etc. book of the month for January, the New Concordia Commentary on John chapter 7 verse 2 through 12 verse 50. Jesus says you will die in your sin. In fact, he says it twice. How should we understand this? Yes, there's an interesting play sometimes in John's gospel between a plural form such as we have right here and a singular form, such as we find, for example, in John one twenty nine, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, singular, of the world. In my reading, Todd, of the Gospel of John, I think sin 
in the singular has to do with the simple fact of unbelief, the incapacity or the refusal to recognize Jesus as who he truly is, as the Son of God sent from his Father into the world for the redemption of man. Not to believe in Christ, then, by way of that mission, is the sin. If that's the case, as I think it is, then sins in the plural will have maybe this connotation. Those various activities, those various attitudes which reflect and give expression to the foundational posture of unbelief. And so to live according to unfaith or disbelief is to do multifaceted activities, to think thoughts, to have wishes, to engage in certain behaviors, all of which give expression to a singular hobbitus and a singular position over against God, and that is unbelief. And so the more I studied this gospel, the more I was overcome by the ongoing and multifaceted way in which the deity of this man was being portrayed. And the very fact then that this man, the Word made flesh, is none other than God the Son incarnated in the world, confronts the world with an absolute reality in which there is no middle. You're either on one side or the other. And so as you read these passages, such as you have read, read them again, you will note increasingly these dualisms, a life, death, belief, unbelief, you are from below, I am from above, these quite distinct and absolute contrasts which do not allow any middle ground. There's no place for rest. And so either you are with Jesus or you are not. You either believe in him and so are a disciple of him or you are not. And that is very typical of John, these very strong, not metaphysical, but they are redemptive contrasts of light and darkness, life and death, belief and unbelief. And it colors the entire way this gospel tells the story of Jesus. They ask the question, this is vitally important, who are you? What's there? Well, indeed, in many ways, that's the whole question, isn't it, that governs this, this gospel. And the issue of Jesus' identity is always in play. Sometimes it is, uh, you can't overlook it, such as in that question, who are you? Tell us, who are you? I mean, when we look at you, when we listen to you, when we have to do with you, whether we oppose you or whether we gather with you, exactly who is it that we're gathering with or opposing? It is the question. This is why, again, if I might, this multifaceted way in which this gospel places this man Jesus before our faces 
indeed by way of this particular account with the Jews, but frankly, we are in the place of the Jews. We have to ask, who are you? Such as Peter does, right, in the synoptic accounts. Who do you say I am, Jesus asked Peter. And so this is the question. And this finally, in this gospel, this it will, of course, be answered. It will be answered perhaps most spectacularly by Thomas. Behold, my Lord and my God. There's your answer, right? There's your answer. Who are you? I am your Lord. I am your God. That's the answer. But this answer that who I am cannot be answered apart from the cross. And this is what is also crucial about this particular context, because this question of who are you will eventually lead Jesus to speak about his exaltation on the cross. When you have lifted me up, the technical language of exaltation, when you have lifted me up, obviously it speaks of their crucifying Jesus, but this this interesting double entendre means when you have placed me into a position of exaltation and authority, which the Jews ironically will do themselves by way of the Romans, of course, then this play of these temporal adverbs, when you will exalt me, should exalt me, then you will know, ego e me, I am. I really think in many ways that John 8.28 is one of the primary, most central passages of the entire text, because in its own way, gives the fundamental meaning, such as I would understand it, of this whole gospel text. And that is the crucifixion of Jesus is the manifestation of our Heavenly Father as a God of mercy and love. And so if you want to know God, if you want to know the Father, then you must contemplate and indeed eventually be united with Christ in his salvific death. And so it is uh, this answer to who are you is finally an answer. I am your God and your Lord, but this is not an abstraction. Your God and your Lord is none other than the one who is manifested as the crucified. And because he is manifested as the crucified, you know that your God and Lord is the God of love, is the God of humility, is the God of grace, is the God of mercy. And therefore, you can trust and hope in him for your eternal life. All through John's Gospel, it is the Father who sent me or the one who sent me. It's here at least twice in this text. Why does Jesus refer to the Father as the one who sent him? (laughs) Well, I I guess... (laughs) The direct answer is because he was sent by the Father. If I could quote Irenaeus, he says something that I think is very true of this gospel text. The knowledge of God, the Father, is the manifestation of the Son. So this this dynamics of a sender and a one who is sent was the most thoroughgoing expression of the economy of that God who is not unipersonal, 
but indeed is eventually recognized as triune. And so you come to know one by way of another. And in a way, the, the father is, you know, as we say in dogmatic history, it is not the father who was carnated. It's not the father who suffered and died, as Tertullian emphasizes. But in the person of the father, if I can speak in somewhat of these maybe provocative fashion, in the person of the father, the transcendent otherness of God is expressed and maintained. While in the sending of the Son, you have an expression of that transcendent God precisely in his approach to us and in his assuming unto himself our own circumstances so he can redeem us from them. And so this sending idea also then ushers forth into a certain kind of liturgical economy of its own, a worshipful economy, which is expressed in the notion of Jesus as the high priest, for example, an idea that might well be expressed in John's gospel in the Good Shepherd discourse, for example, if not in the story of his passion as well, but certainly it is in the book of Hebrews that it is by way of the one who is sent who then brings us to the Father by way of his own holy sacrifice. And so redemption then finally means to come to the Father. And so when Jesus says over and over again and say in John's gospel, where I am going, you cannot come. He also speaks in this way, I am going to him who sent me, or I am going to my Father who is in heaven. And finally, he says to Mary Magdalena, go tell your brothers that I am going to my God and their God, to my Father and their Father. And so, finally, redemption, and this is very important, and John is importantly crucial for this, that salvation finally has as its telos, its goal, that we are, by way and in the Son, we worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's the message explicitly, of course, of John 4. The Father seeks those who will be authentic, alethinos, authentic worshipers in spirit and truth. How does the Father seek such worshipers? By the sending of the Son, through whose activity, his death and resurrection, he brings to light the will of his Father to save the world and establishes a new people who will be worshipers of his heavenly Father in and through his name. And so then we pray, do we not? The prayer which Jesus himself has taught us, our Father who, namely, the one who is in heaven. And so this notion of sending, I didn't want to be flippant at the very beginning. It, it's the way it was, okay. But it does establish certain salvific as well then as liturgical structures, if you will, 
in which the Christian reality subsists and by which it actually gives itself expression. Is Jesus also making reference to something that he knows by way of Nicodemus, that the Pharisees, while the consensus certainly isn't uniform, he comes to him and says, we know that you are a teacher sent from God, because yes. no one could do the works that you do unless God had sent him. Yes. So he knows that they grudgingly have to acknowledge that he's exercising divine power on behalf of God. They just can't figure out what it's all for. Well, it is. What is, of course, you're referencing here John 3. What is interesting is the answer which Jesus gives to those words of Nicodemus, which at first blush seem to be kind of non sequiturs. As you said, Nicodemus says, we, apparently he and other Pharisees, know that you are a man sent for God, for no one could do what you do unless God is with him. To which Jesus responds, unless one is begotten from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so what basically Jesus says to Nicodemus is, well, okay, but you will not actually see my royalty, the kingdom, the rule of God, unless you are begotten from above in water and spirit. And so he invites uh, Nicodemus, whatever you may think of me, by whatever categories you may think about me being with God or God being with me or by what power I do these miracles— Unless you become my disciple by way of a regeneration of water and spirit, you won't have eternal life. And so there's, a, there's again, this, this implicit but nonetheless deep disjunction between what Nicodemus said and what Jesus then responds. Whatever you are and by whatever criteria you are judging me, unless you become my disciple by the baptism with which I myself am been baptized, which is into his death, you will not see the kingdom of God. That, is, that does not just mean you will not go to heaven. It means you will not contemplate it. You will not see it where it actually exists. This, you will not have the spiritual sight to see that God is working his final purposes through the humility of the cross. You will always, therefore, stand in opposition to it, even if you do not persecute it, because you will not see it, and so you won't promote it. You will not lend your own identity to it. You will not lend your own destiny to it. You will not place your heart, mind, and soul to it, and so because you will not see it. And so... It's not by accident, then, that early Christians spoke of, say, Christian baptism as an illumination, right? Going back to the notion of light. Baptism gives light. It opens the mind. It moves the heart. It ennobles the soul to be a disciple of Jesus, who is the light of the world. So baptism as an entry, yes, it's a salvific activity, but it was also the means by way of becoming Jesus' disciple. And so you follow the light, and in following the light, you are yourself enlightened. And as one enlightened by the light, you are yourself a light. 
And so Jesus can say, say in Matthew 6, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And then a remarkable conclusion here, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so, again, this the manifestation of the Son is knowledge of the Father. But in some way, the manifestation of the Son now is the work of Christ's church of his believers. We are the light of the world. Let's your light. Paul, by virtue of his being an apostolic minister, can actually use Jesus' words about himself. I am the light of the Gentiles. You know, he says to the Jews in the the synagogue of, where is it, Antioch, Pisidia, I guess it is in, in Acts. So this image of light which finds itself, of course, as you know, also in the Nicene Creed. He is light out of light. You have the notion of that light which shines, that light which is the light which is being shined, and then the illumination which that light gives to something that was apart from that light in darkness. And so this light out of light of light became a Trinitarian notion of the Father and the Son. The light which is the Father gives forth the light which is his Son, who shines upon that which does not know God by way of the Holy Spirit and so is illuminated by the Holy Spirit. And so this whole image of light, which John introduces here in a, in a more or less, what should we say, limited Christological and soteriological sense, has played huge role in the way the church, and even in its doctrinal formation, has thought about God and his redemption. Dr. Bill Weinrich is professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's author of The Issues, Etc., a book of the month for January, the New Concordia Commentary on John chapter 7, verse 2 through chapter 12, verse 50. You can purchase this new commentary at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Next time, we'll have Dr. Weinrich lead us into teaching on I Am the Good Shepherd in John chapter 10. Dr. Weinrich, thank you very much. Thank you, Todd. Always uh, wonderful to converse with you. Dr. Michael New is with us on the other side of the break. We're going to talk about the Biden administration and abortion drugs. Stay tuned. If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. Bequests aren't subject to federal tax or capital gains taxes. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, and the word of the Lord endures forever. Since 1973, pro-life advocates have been gathering annually in Washington, D.C. to march for unborn life. 
And since the overturning of Roe v. Wade last year, this movement has taken on new direction and new focus. To learn more, pick up your copy of the January issue of The Lutheran Witness, titled Life After Roe, and learn more about what the pro-life movement is now doing to stand up for life. Visit cph.org witness or witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Christological. Creedal. Confessional. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Listen to the best of the church's music for the Epiphany season at lutheranpublicradio.org. Sacred music for the Epiphany season, 24-7. lutheranpublicradio.org.